Oh God, you are our God. We seek you. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So we look upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, our lips will praise you and we will bless you as long as we live in your name we will lift up our hands. Lord, our soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and our mouths will praise you with joyful lips. When we remember you on our bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been our help, and in the shadow of your wings we sing for joy. Our soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds us. Those who seek to destroy us shall go down into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword, their portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of all liars will be stopped. God, we together declare your glory and your goodness, Lord. We declare our weakness our sinfulness, our bankruptcy apart from you, and we look to you, Lord, with eyes of faith and say that you are the only treasure worth having, and at your right hand, O Lord, our pleasures forevermore. Satisfy our souls, Lord, today, like we feel satisfied after eating a great meal. Satisfy our souls today, O Lord, in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Don't mind me, but I don't want the battery to run out on these folks in the uh, in the mask room. Hi, folks. How you doing? It's me. All right, there we go. Well, if you open your Bibles to the Book of Acts, chapter eight, verse twenty-six. We continue our series, our little mini-series called Success Redeemed. We're in part three, and now we're turning our attention to God's redemption of the Ethiopian eunuch. And in verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, the court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken 
away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. There are a bunch of different ways to approach this passage. It is, it is deeply embedded with lots of truths. And I bet you've heard a lot of sermons on this passage over the years. And as I, as I spent a lot of time this week thinking about, well, how, what's the best way to bring forward all of the beautiful truths of this passage? I thought, let's do a study in contrast, because that seems to be at least some of the intent of the narrative to show us a study of contrast. And here's kind of what I mean. So first of all, you've got a contrast between two different servants. Okay, so we're out in, in the desert, right? And we've got this chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch, and then we've got Philip coming the other direction or from the other direction. Actually, I think they just kind of intercept each other. And the first thing you kind of think about when you look at this is, well, now you've got, in this one setting, two servants who are standing face to face. Uh, They're both servants, and in a way, they're both treasurers. You have the eunuch, and he is a treasurer for the queen named Candace. And Philip, likewise, is a servant of Jesus. He's a servant of Christ the King. And the Bible would describe him also as a treasurer. One of my favorite verses in the scripture is in Matthew 13, where Jesus says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. He brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. When we are uh, servants of Jesus, we become and we become competent in the scriptures. We become stewards in the same way that this Ethiopian is a steward. We become a master over this incredible treasure. So there in the desert, you've got this treasure of an Ethiopian treasure, the Ethiopian eunuch. And over here, you've got Philip, who is this scribe trained in the kingdom, and he's bringing forth the treasures of Jesus. It's kind of this meeting of two servants, two stewards. And, and one of the things you kind of can't help but think about, especially if you have that juvenile fifth grader inside of you, you know, uh, like I do, uh, who's never left, you know, you, 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 can't, you can't read about a eunuch without giggling a little bit, you know? And, and you've, so you've got these two servants who are standing there talking to each other, and, and you're, you're, you're thinking about this, this, this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch, and you're thinking about... You know, his position was a pretty important position. And, and the reason why the eunuch thing had to happen, or, or well, it didn't have to happen. Uh, it was a bad idea, don't get me wrong. Uh, but the reason that it happened was that, you know, you know, something we could really benefit from getting back to is having a generational view of things. So we could begin thinking more about, like, how are our grandchildren going to do, you know, than, than just how are we doing. And so the ancient world was a very generationally minded culture and bloodlines were very important and, and and especially within royal dynasties bloodlines were especially important especially in in uh, middle eastern uh, royalty bloodlines were very important and so why would you uh, want to have a guy working with the queen who perhaps behind closed doors could produce a second competing bloodline 
So what, what's going on with the eunuch thing? Well, the eunuch thing is just a way of ensuring that we know that all of the babies the queen has are the king's, right? It's just a way of ensuring uh, the purity of a, of a bloodline. They're always thinking about multiple generations down the road. But as I was thinking about this idea of a eunuch, I thought, you know, here's, here's an idea. Here's an interesting idea. Every kingdom comes with a cost. We're all serving a kingdom, and we all have to pay a price for the kingdom we serve. Every kingdom comes with a cost. And for the Ethiopian eunuch, the cost is, well, you know, right? That, that's the cost. In order for him to ascend to that particular position, he had to give some things up. Every kingdom comes with a cost. And now we have Philip on the other side, who is also a servant, and he's a servant of Jesus. And we have to remember that there's a cost of discipleship too. There's a cost for that king and that kingdom as well. Jesus reminds me over and over again of Mark 8, 34, where he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So Philip came onto the scene in Acts chapter six. We focus so much on Stephen in Acts chapter six. We maybe noticed that Philip was there too. Philip is also a deacon and Philip very early on in his ministry to the Lord Jesus very early on as a steward of the household of God, becomes familiar with the price of following Jesus. So I think when you look at this passage, you look at the eunuch, if you're a fifth grader, you look at the eunuch and you say, man, that's a high price to pay for serving in that kingdom. It's like, well, actually, if you want to follow Christ, it'll cost you your whole life. It'll cost you everything. Now, Jesus is really clear that, that the cost of Christian discipleship is total. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I mean, following Jesus will cost you your favorite sins. It'll, it'll, it'll cost you everything. There's a high cost to discipleship. So that's the idea that every kingdom comes with a cost. Every kingdom does, including the kingdom of God. But every kingdom also comes with a crown. There's always a, a, a risk to a reward ratio or an ROI, a return on investment. And there's always this question of, yeah, everything we do is going to have a cost to it. Whatever you wind up serving is going to exact some cost from you. And the crazy thing is, is this, this millennial fear of missing out. I think it's a sign that you're smarter than we think you are. Because I didn't know I was saying no to a million things when I was your age. I was, though. I just didn't know. So I wasn't afraid of it. But the truth is, is that as you progress through life, for every yes, there's a million, million no's, right? And, and, and the truth is, is that whatever you, you see as success, whatever kingdom you decide to, to move toward, it's going to come with a cost. There's, you're going to wind up with scars, lifelong scars, over the battles you fought to get to the place you wanted to go. And so it's good to weigh the cost. It's good to count the cost. It's good to say, if I follow that, then what am I leaving behind? Every kingdom has a cost, but every kingdom has a crown. And so you have to decide, is the, king, is the crown of the kingdom that I'm seeking worth the cost? And for the eunuch, the answer is absolutely not. Like the whole deal here is we're going to cut you off from the future. We're going to let you live for the here and now. We're going to make a deal with you. You ever see those movies where people make a deal with the devil so they can play the guitar really well or something? 
It's this very short sight. It's like, well, what after? What happens after you're old? You know, it's uh, it's like seeing uh, tattoos on 90 year old bodies. It's sort of like I'm sure at some point that seemed like a good idea, but it's not wearing well. You know, the deal with being a eunuch is I'm going to mortgage my future and my legacy for the here and now. That's the deal. Now, I don't know if it was voluntary or not, but I know that's a very helpful thing to remember when we start talking about weighing the costs, because every kingdom has a cost, and seeing the crown, because every kingdom has a crown. I mean, this idea of living for this life alone seems incredibly, incredibly short-sighted. So Philip, on the other hand, he's paying a higher cost, but his crown is much, much greater. I was perusing... Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship, which is really a book all about this. It's really a book all about this idea of paying the necessary price to follow Jesus. And he's very, he's very consistent about describing grace, uh, true grace, as costly. But then he's always careful to say that that costly grace is, is totally worth it. So listen to the, just one of these excerpts from Bonhoeffer about this idea. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. So it's costly because it causes us to follow. But you're going to follow something anyway. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace, because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It's not a perfect quote. Nothing that Bonhoeffer does is. But this parallel between, yeah, following Jesus is expensive, and it's also really, really worth it. There was a, a pastor that I, I, I didn't know this guy well. I, a, a friend of mine was, knew him better, but he was a Hispanic pastor, and he was planting a church in Beardstown, Illinois. Uh, there's a massive pork uh, processing plant up there. It's been raided by ice many times. And this Hispanic pastor moved up there to plant this church. And all day long, during the day, he slaughters pigs, talking to people about Jesus on the plant for, you know, 120 degrees in this, in this plant. And then at night, he goes out and does ministry every day of the week. And uh, we're pulling up. We're in this small town, me and my buddy, at the gas station. And this, this Mexican guy, this Mexican pastor pulls up and... Uh, and my friend says, you know, hey, man, how are you doing? I think his name was actually Juan. Hey, Juan, how are you doing? And he's like, pastor, pastor. Oh, he's, like, he's like, man, I am overworked. But, man, I am overpaid. <laughs> and he's like, I get to serve Jesus. I am overpaid. So this idea of two servants is kind of like, okay, choose your kingdom carefully. Because every kingdom's going to come with a cost, and every kingdom's going to come with a crown. Choose your kingdom carefully. Matthew 8, verse 35 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So the second contrast we see in this passage is the one that I think is really the most interesting. And that is the two successes, two visions of success or two successes. Another way to look at this passage is to contrast the eunuch with Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's, let's think about that for a minute. Let's talk about the eunuch's success. Taking things at face value, if you just read the text, the first run through, and you have a good imagination, you see a well-dressed, rich, important man riding in the biblical equivalent of a Learjet. He's feeling fly like a G6. And, and he is well-dressed, and he is an impressive individual. He's leaving Jerusalem where he'd gone to worship. There's not a lot of holes in this guy's success, by the way. Uh, he's even doing the Jesus, or he's doing the Bible stuff. You know, he's reading the Bible. He's leaving worship. He's he, he's he's well situated. So here's this vision of success we have: this guy in this nice chariot, well dressed in the shade, uh, the heat's beating down in the desert, and he's reading Isaiah. You know, coming back from worshiping. But look at what he's reading. He's reading from Isaiah 53, which has a completely different view of success. Isaiah 53 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, if you wanted to conduct a class called How to Write a Bad Rap Song, you would, you would go to Isaiah 53 and say, Okay, just invert, just, just take everything here. Like this man has no reputation. He doesn't look like anything. He's weak. He's vulnerable. He's suffering. Every potential image of earthly success is undone in the passage that many of us would consider to be ground zero for the gospel. There's this very interesting contrast that you have in this chariot, a well-dressed man in the private jet of his day, reading about the suffering servant, one from whom men hide their faces and who is despised and esteemed not, a man of sorrows, stricken and smitten by God. So the idea here among many, and we'll unfold this further This week and next, the idea here, though, among many is that true success is complicated. (laughs) Much in this world that looks like winning is losing. And much in this world that looks like losing is winning. When I was a teenager, there was a joke going around. It's a terrible joke that, you know, that that person is a Monet, that that guy or that girl is a Monet. And what that what that Monet was kind of a thing at that point. Uh, Um was that from a distance they look fine, but when you get up close, it's kind of a mess. It's a really cruel, 
cruel joke. Earthly success, though, that's exactly what the Bible says about earthly success. It's kind of a Monet. From a distance, in a moment of time, yeah, I mean, it looks impressive enough. But success is complicated. And a lot of times, stuff that looks like winning is really losing. And a lot of times, stuff that looks like losing is really winning. Jesus says in Luke, that which is esteemed among men is an abomination before God. Last time I was up in Wyoming, I I drove past this mansion that I'd seen before, but I was with a friend, and he told me the story of this mansion. It's a sprawling estate backed up against a, a lake and a golf course, and then behind the golf course are some mountains. It's a perfect view. And in the front, it has that very grand sort of portico entrance and a circle driveway and so on and so forth. And in very in front, in the middle of the circle driveway is a uh, commissioned sculpture that's it's larger than life size of a man. And his upper body is visible and he's got a hammer in one hand and a chisel in the other. And around his waist or so is only rock. And the idea commissioned by the, the guy who built the mansion, the guy who was wealthy enough to own half the town, the idea that he wanted to represent to people who came to his house was that he was a self-made man who carved himself out of stone. And for years, this man had parties and entertained everyone, you know, vice president, lots of folks. And they would all pull in and they would see this statue of the self-made man who was worth billions. And then he killed himself. True success is complicated. A lot that looks like winning is really losing. And when we see Isaiah 53, we're reminded that a lot that looks like losing is really winning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, to, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then there's a third contrast that shows up in this passage. And it's two sheep. Two sheep. Two different kinds of sheep. It's the tale of two servants, the tale of two successes, and the tale of two sheep. Look at verse 32 of our, of our passage, Acts 8, 32. Now the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shears is silent so he opens not his mouth in his humiliation justice was denied him who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth isaiah 53 is interesting in the way that it makes everybody including jesus into a sheep 
So early on in verse 6, it says this in Isaiah 53. We, all, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. And then it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So what kind of sheep are we? Well, we are the kind of, what kind of sheep is the Ethiopian? We are the kind of sheep who go astray, who turn each to his own way. And why do we turn each to our own way? When you, when you boil all of that down, it becomes simple. We go astray because we are convinced there are greener pastures elsewhere. In other words, our straying comes about from a false view of success. We think we know what's best for us. We think we know what winning looks like. Why do we and why does this Ethiopian eunuch go astray? Because in the sinfulness of our own hearts, we believe we know a better destination than the one the Lord would lead us to. And that's why we call this series Success Redeemed, because we need to be redeemed from our false views of success, because our false views of success are sin. And they're directing our lives in places that are hurtful to us and our high rebellion against the goodness of God. Why do sheep go astray? They go astray because they think somewhere else there's a greener bit of pasture. They go astray because they follow their own appetites as a compass, right? They follow their own ambitions as ultimate. They go astray because they have this goal in mind, not very well thought out, sort of on autopilot, right? But they're heading to something they think will satisfy. So the very first sin in all the world, the first sin recorded in all the world, involves a couple of sheep named Adam and Eve straying across a line that God had set. And why did they do it? Is they'd had a new idea of what success looked like had a new idea of a better destination to be like God. So what kind of sheep are we? We're the sheep that go astray. That's, that's who we are. That's who the Ethiopian eunuch is. What kind of sheep is he, Jesus, in this passage? Well, he's the sheep that doesn't go astray. And here's the crazy thing. He's the sheep that doesn't go astray even when his master is leading him to the slaughterhouse. He has no other definition for success other than obeying God. That's it. That's his definition of success. His definition of success is not a destination as, it much, as so much as a, de- a devotion to the Father. That's his definition of success. I do what the Father calls me to do. So we're the sheep that go astray, and he's the sheep who walks to the cross. And Jesus shows us in that the definition of success, the only definition of success that really works across both this life and the life to come. And that is simply 
the testimony on every page of scripture, true success is trusting God. True success is trusting God. That's what it is. That's all it is. Proverbs 3. Proverbs is a book all about success. It's all about helping a young man figure out how to navigate this world and arrive at the place where he should be. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. You'll probably have most of it memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So this is the good news that Philip presents to the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 36 of our text says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. True success requires the substitutionary atonement of Jesus because we don't, in and of ourselves, because of the sin in our own hearts, have the power to trust God. That's how broken we are in our natural state. True success is trusting God. We can't do it. We can't trust God. We will always, always, always stray. And so Jesus came and took on our curse. He took on the visible definition of anti-success, the visible definition of brokenness and bankruptcy. He was visibly humiliated. And he did that so that he could, by faith, trusting in the Father, walk to the cross and offer himself up so that we could be given new hearts that are capable of trusting God. And all of this for the Ethiopian eunuch begins, and it begins for all of us too, by trusting what God says about Jesus Christ. That's what it means when Philip shares the good news of Jesus. Here is the way to become the other sheep. Here is the way to become the other version of success. Here's the way to be the better servant of the better kingdom with the better crown. Jesus has offered himself for you. Trust in what he has done. Believe in that. That's your first step in becoming successful, trusting in what Jesus has done. It's the first thing that you must trust God for. You must trust that God has made atonement through Jesus for your sin, that God has made a way for you to be his that God has made a way for you to have a new heart so that you could walk with him, trusting him. Because that is, the Bible says very clearly, page after page after page, trusting him. That is the only definition of success. Let me pray. Gracious God, we ask that you would do a miracle in our hearts to help us to trust you. Lord, I pray that you would do this, extend that, miracle beyond this church and that you would bring many lord to faith in you and that you would join them their hearts to this uh, father son daughter daughter father kind of relationship that 
all who are in Christ have, and that we could walk together with them, Lord, walk together with you, with them. Thank you, Father, to redeeming us from our sinful and selfish ambitions. Thank you for redeeming us from our our self-destructive appetites. Thank you most of all, Lord, for giving us the power through Jesus to trust you. We pray, God, that you would allow us to see this week that power on display in our lives. In Jesus, our Savior's name we pray, amen.